Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Blister Podcast. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, the founder of Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Our guest today is Bodie Miller, one of the greatest ski racers of all time, and without question, one of the most interesting people to ever do it. Bodie also has a ton of stuff going on these days, and so I thought this would be a good time to catch up with him and to ask him about a few of those things that I was particularly curious about. And what I can tell you is that the result here is a very wide-ranging and very fascinating conversation. Among other things, Bodhi and I talk about his interest and involvement in the project of rethinking education. We talk about the use of technology and data in making skiing easier and to help people ski better. Bodhi also shares the crucial lesson that his grandmother taught him at a young age. And after that, I asked Bodhi about what he thought his greatest competitive advantage was as a ski racer. And his answer to that is fascinating. But we weren't even done there. We also got into what he hopes to do in terms of ski design with Cross and Skis. And we also talked more about technology and social media and the time he spent with Donald Trump and more. And so we will include links in the show notes to this episode to a number of the initiatives and companies that Bodie and I talk about here. So be sure to check those out. And now let's just go ahead and get to my conversation with Bodie Miller. Well, Bodie Miller, how are you today and where are you today? I'm doing well. I'm up in Big Sky, Spanish Peaks in Montana, looking out at some lightly falling snow. This is my happy place. I definitely, in the middle of juggling a million things, I'm, I'm doing real well. We've just been talking for a bit prior to formally coming on here. And I think it might literally be true that you are juggling a million things. So that was actually part of my interest in in talking with you now. I was just kind of like, let's catch up and at least talk about some of those million things that you've got going on. Does that seem all right? Yeah. Yeah. Sounds good. I don't think you're wrong. Honestly, it's, you know, it's, it is probably a million. I want to start here. ICL. Talk to us about what ICL is. ICL is Institute for Civic Leadership, and it's a sister school to Dwight. The Dwight schools are uh, sort of prestigious New York-based 150-year-old educational institution, and they've expanded to schools globally, Shanghai, Dubai, London. It's really a, a kind of high-end private school at its, at its DNA, at its roots, and the family that's been the custodians of that, the stewards of it for the last, say, 100 years is close friends of mine. And, and I'd always been interested in education. I felt like it was one of the things that I regretted was that there wasn't a better structure in place for me to pursue my skiing and pursue my uh, academics or, or other interests at the same time. It was kind of a decision I had to make. And, and in hindsight, I feel like I did okay because the athletic part has a lifespan and uh, you have to kind of hit it while it's hot and then you can spend the rest of your life trying to figure out how to learn stuff and exploring and you know while you don't have the same mind you did when you were younger <laughs> it's uh it's it's great you can you know I, I think you can catch up there but I felt very strongly that if I could I wanted to facilitate 
that opportunity for the next generation and, and make sure that technology was being applied the most useful ways. And also, I just, you know, I think we can all agree that education hasn't really morphed or evolved the way that it could have over the last, call it 100 years. And with technology, there's just so many ways to look at human development, kids, priorities, and what's interesting and how they absorb information and, and do it right. And so ICL, having launched their digital platform about 20 years ago, had an enormous amount of experience and, and a really thoughtful approach to it. You know, this inverted, blended classroom, um, the way information is presented to kids, the way they engage with it, their choices of how they digest that, and the interaction with the teacher, with their classmates, all digital was just too good to pass up for me. I mean, I was friends with them anyway, and, and I'd always help them with their existing platform and schools. But with COVID, it just became an emergency to offer something to the broader public that that solved problems and it was superior to what public schools were able to do or private schools were able to do in a five-month panic-driven span um, where they were forced to do it. You know, the 20 years of experience comes in real handy at that point. So we launched this Winter Sports Academy. Really, there's all sorts of different sports academies. And my friend who's connected, uh, Kirk Spawn, um, who's connected to sports, his whole life was a tennis player. He's been sort of, you know, doing these satellite sort of academies. He's doing one with Kerry Walsh and and uh, with me, and he has a bunch of tennis guys. And I just felt like I wanted to take that leadership role and and offer this to kids. And we've had a, a great re- response so far. I mean, it's a lot of people are in, you know, I guess triage mode right now, right? Everyone's just kind of put, figuring out, like, let's just wait through it. And But we've had a, a great adoption rate. And I, I honestly would encourage people to to look at this regardless of what happens with COVID because it, it frees up time. It, it instills different qualities in kids of accountability, resilience, grit, um, independence, all these things that are intangibles that as a parent you want your kids to have, but it's hard to, to, to poke it into them. Um, and certainly public school doesn't really help with that that much or, or the typical school system doesn't really help with that. So yeah, ICL is is a online, full online digital academy that we will move to a, a brick and mortar facilities post COVID. We've we'd planned that for the last three or four years, but it it was actually ironically right at go point when COVID really struck, and we've tabled that and just gone digital for now. And then that essentially will be our pipeline for these brick and mortar schools. But you know, the kids basically have an hour and a half a day where they have to be on a, a live class. And the teacher really just facilitates conversation between the students about what they learned about all the stuff. The kids lead that and talk to each other. And then all the rest of the schooling is done in this, you know, video, auditory and reading uh, different platforms where they can choose what works for them. And they just jam through. It's all basically, I mean, there is no more like, Hey, I don't understand this to your parent, right? That's just, it's all right there. You have every different thing. They just tell you how to do it. Then you practice it up to mastery. And then your next live class, you discuss that again. So my, my nephew, my older sister's son is doing it. And he was kind of a, you know, New Hampshire public school, not terribly engaged young boy. He's just killing it. And it's, it's incredible to see that impact that we've been able to have. You mentioned a phrase in there. You said an inverted blended classroom. Can you just say another word about that? Yeah, it's essentially, I mean, and honestly, as as uh, much as I've been involved in this, I'm still not the right person to go in depth of stuff. But the concept is essentially inverted means the, the actual teacher is not trying to shove information in your face. You know, it's not, they're not going over the lesson in class and then you go home and do homework. They've inverted that. So you essentially, your homework is this fully 
transparent. Here is how you do it. Here's six different ways to do it. Here's a video of how you do it. Here's the explanation. Here's examples. It walks you through everything. And then you practice that. And then in the classroom, you essentially do, you know, sort of like a review, I guess, but it's more of a social context review, which in the, in this context, the reason they went that way is because they understood that the engagement was much higher. Kids didn't engage with information being pushed out at them through a screen. Uh, it was hard enough when a classroom with a teacher actually there, they still didn't engage with that very well. So in this case, it's, it's kind of, they, they touched on the things that kids did engage with, which was um, conversation, you know, interaction with their students and, and not the teacher monologuing at them. So, and blended is, is more about ages and, and abilities. So in this case, there's not all one group of kids. It's sometimes a kid from older, sometimes younger, um, but within a range. I mean, you're not going to have a senior win with a, with a seventh grader, but, but the idea there is you, you have different skill levels and people can progress much more quickly. And it ends up kind of facilitating different leadership skills and interactivity because of that, because of the differentiation between the students. Got it. So rather than just being like, well, we're both ninth graders and I guess that's the most important factor as opposed to if you're picking things up quicker than I am or something. And so is that right? We're kind of getting past that a bit and being more like what groups of students would make for a better fit. Yeah. And then the reason that it's actually helpful is, like I said, it's more from a child development standpoint, but it's in those conversations, which are the only live conversations, say a younger kid from China is going to have a different perspective on why something mattered versus an older kid from New Jersey and, a, and a, an older kid from, say, Argentina, right? And that, that, that they've found that that engagement is what makes kids actually think and, and, and it, it embeds that information and then they, they have applications to it. They find that interesting in a way that maybe we do still as adults, but as a kid, you really do because if everyone's clustered from the same town in the same classroom, it's just, it's kind of, you're automatically sort of within one demographic. And that that's a really important part of that blended mechanism. Got it. So, I mean, I think I, what, I think I missed that part of it. I mean, we're, we're talking about truly bringing in a multinational, multicultural student body now. Yep. Wow. Yep. And the, and you can out of this. So from strictly online, again, where you have this massive amount of freedom and time to, to adapt and adjust your schedule and pursue your other passions. And all this stuff has, has bits of, say, the Winter Sports Academy for physics or for math. We'll be touching on elements of it that apply to skiing, snowboarding, hockey, whatever. So there's these elements that are blended into the learning curriculum that also inspire the same concept, right? That kids can actually think of how it applies. But yeah, I mean, the, the basis of it is that we want to we wanna rethink how you make kids engage and enjoy what they're doing, as well as come out of it with an IB or, you know, AP diploma without feeling like they were doing the public school or private school AP program, which is like four hours of homework a night. And, you know, this is honestly, my, my nephew is, is absolutely crushing it. And he doesn't feel like he's feels like he's doing less than he did in school because, because of the way they structure it and because of the way he's getting the information, it just feels like less yet he's excelling. Very interesting. So this is ICL's Winter Sports Academy, right? And we'll put a link up in the show notes to this. People should definitely check this out. Very cool. Skio, what's up with Skio? <laughs> I want to first uh, 
a little bit uh, context. I mean, as you know, right, you start off as a kid with bitching at your parents for not having one thing or another done. And, and then uh, in high school, you kind of complain about teachers and politicians. And then as you get older, you realize at some point you got to stop bitching about it and just do the stuff. Right. I mean, they're just they were kids who just got older. Right. And, and now we're putting the responsibility on them. And at some point, the earlier you discover that <laughs> psychological conundrum, the better. So I I'd wanted technology to be a part of my understanding of my sport of skiing, but really all sports from a young age. I didn't like the fact that coaches were giving me this information or assessments and it was completely subjective. And one coach would say one thing, another coach would say another thing. And it was easy for me at 10 years old to understand that they didn't know shit. I mean, they didn't know the answer. They were just giving me a very loose opinion. And that was, again, based on what they were seeing me do. They didn't know what my what was going on in my head or what my goals were, how it felt to do a certain thing. And they certainly didn't know my motivation. So I wanted objective information, ways to quantify things and, and empower myself to have ownership of what I was doing. I wanted to be like, okay, maybe even like a context for what they were saying. Okay, this is what they're saying. Here's what it means in data form. And then here's how I can adjust to that. And maybe it'll satisfy them in some weird way. But either way, I'm going to know how to you know, do something with data that wasn't just their opinion subjectively. So I'd, I'd worked on that for a long time. The technology just wasn't there. And um, in 05, we kind of made a pretty hard push while I was you know, successful at the top of World Cup. And it just it was frustrating. We spent a bunch of money. It just you know, we were flailing around. But now the technology has advanced to a point where it's pretty, pretty commonplace. You're seeing it explode in all these sort of industries, Strava and, and cycling. There's all these running apps and, and technology of tracking your your stuff for all sorts of things, yoga and, and everything else. And the ski space is, is maybe the most uh, in need of that, of any of those. I mean, it's, there's so many technical aspects. Everyone does it differently. It's like a fingerprint. I mean, no one skis the same. And if you're enjoying it, you're doing it right. But you still might want to know how to do this differently or, or where your weaknesses are, all that stuff. And to just rely on uh, an instructor or a coach or your friends, I just felt like wasn't it just wasn't a solution. You know, it, we're just taking all that information, democratizing it, you know, things that were exclusive to those type of people, coaches, instructors, and just giving it directly to the consumer, you know, just saying, Hey, here's, here's what you're doing. It's not me saying, it's like, this is your actions. This is what you're doing. And if you want to change it, here's how to change it. And so it's basically a, it's an app platform. It's free at the base level measure. It uses the telemetry in your phone. So it measures accelerometer, barometer, you know, all these different things to, to basically pick up your movement patterns and identify what you're doing. And it has a bunch of other features that are great. You can find your friends, you can track your kids, you can do all this stuff because you push notifications, little passive coaching. And then there's a, a more robust version that's paid um, that gives you all kinds of things, activating your cerebellum, inner ear stuff for balance, which is severely lacking in a sport like skiing and can be really helpful. Uh, and then ultimately a hardware platform that has two little sort of cookie size, Oreo cookie size things that go on your skis really easy, stick on there in front of the bindings and one that goes on the center of your chest, like a heart rate monitor. And it, then you have all this incredible data. It's, it's, you know, these very intense sensors pick up 120 data points and basically tell you everything that's happening, rotation, initiation, parallel skis, arcing, sliding, you know, degree of decline, distance off jumps, all sorts of stuff. And the net of that is that I think it, it helps people have fun. Honestly, it seems like maybe a little bit spreadsheety or like too much data, but I, I broke that down, reverse engineered all that data, 
back into an avatar. So if nothing else, you can pull up your phone, open it up, and you'll have this digital little guy who represents you. You can pick your clothes. And for next year, you'll be able to actually take a picture of your face, and your face will be your guy, and it'll advance a lot. And you'll, it'll be like a computer, uh, I mean, a, a you know, digital version of yourself. And he'll, he'll go through your whole run, down the trail that you skied. We overlay that with Google Maps. So shows the trail. You can stop it and rotate it like they do with like the VR stuff for, for football and stuff. You can check it out from different angles and see what your guy is actually doing visually. And I think for your average, you know, skiing has been flat for 40 years or 50 years, whatever, because seven or eight out of 10 people who try it for the first time, don't try it again. <laughs> and that's because it's, it's friggin' brutal in the beginning. And, um, and expensive and all these other things. It's just an intimidating sport. But in this case, I think we've taken that and made it a lot more. Barriers to entry are plentiful. And we've sort of taken a few of them and reduced them. And you don't need an instructor. You can actually start from zero and have a lot of good information and data right there. And you can see what you're doing. You're like, okay, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm jamming along. You know, I, I get this and I want to have fun. And so I'm excited about that. I think it's, you know, it's one of those things that I, I very much felt I had to do. I couldn't just keep bitching about it not being there. And it, it kind of works in conjunction with a, a few other projects that I'm doing that, again, facilitate people experimenting, trying skiing for the first time, trying snowboarding for the first time, and and very inexpensively in some uh, indoor ski place called Snowbon. They can go in there for 30, 40 bucks, and they can advance from never having skied to more or less being able to stop and, and turn uh, in a half an hour, which is just unheard of. And you know, so it works along with that because they capture data there as well. And that helps them to feel confident going out onto the hill. This is, I think, one of the most interesting things about you, that people who are familiar with your background, your childhood, how you were brought up, you said it right off the bat, you know, as like this hippie kid, right? And I think most of us are pretty familiar with that story. And by the way, and we'll, we're going to include it, you know, probably the back end of this conversation we're having right now the, the the conversation that you and I dove into right away talking about social media and technology and some of the dangers of it while I'm listening to you talk it's easy to just imagine oh yeah Bodie would definitely be the the sort of person who's just against all of this tech but it's not that simple right I mean we started off you're talking about the technological advantages that the ICL Winter Sports Academy is trying to bring into education. Now you're talking about uses of technology that can really help people have a better time skiing. Maybe this is just my own simplistic take, but I think sometimes it's like we struggle to be like, yeah, someone can be really skeptical of a lot of technology and also really enthusiastic about how might we use this to a beneficial end. I don't, I don't think we handle nuance very well like that, if that makes sense. No, and you touched on it with the social dilemma, right? I mean, they, they say it very clearly in there. The initial idea was like, wow, we're going to connect people. This is going to be so awesome. And whether that, how much of that was true or how much they were seeing down the road that they were going to make billions of dollars or, or possibly be one of the biggest dangers to our culture and society historically there's ever been, <laughs> who knows? But, but yeah, I mean, I, I've always said the same thing. I mean, if you want to say drugs are bad, right, or or social media is bad or technology is bad, 
you're missing the entire point. It has no inherent quality in that in that whole sector, in that space. It doesn't have a good or bad. It is what it is. It's how you use it, right? Is a gun bad? No, a gun is just, a, it just sits there. If you don't shoot it, it just does nothing. It's like a blob. Does it have inherent danger? Sure. So do drugs. So does social media. So does all technology. But it's a matter of how you apply it. And I, you know, unfortunately, to some degree, right, we're born into the lot we're born into. If we were in the Middle Ages, we'd have different challenges and, and different conversations. But born into this technological, uh, you know, accelerated technological age, you kind of have to make do with what you got, right? You can't, we're not, can't turn the clock back and turn off technology. It's just not going to happen. So I'm more of a pragmatist in that sense. My dad is an idealist and we have some really funny conversations about, about that. And, you know, I'm like, look, you gotta, if you're on a boat and you're heading towards the shore, you, you gotta turn it, right? You can't just be like, oh, I wish I wasn't on this boat. It's like, okay, that's a fine sentiment, but you're not, unless you can wish your ass off the boat, good luck. Like you got to figure out how to turn the ship. And I think, you know, creating good uses of technology that are beneficial is a mitigating factor in this process, right? And the more people who do that, the more we're going to steer away from the, the, you know, the pitfalls, the real danger zones of technology and hopefully find our way through it. I, you know, I'm, I'm not uh, terribly optimistic, but I always reserve a space in there for, for optimism. I always think back to the fact that Henry David Thoreau publishes the book Walden in 1854. And so he's working on Walden, you know, through the mid 1840s and the early 1850s. And he is extremely worried about emerging technologies in the 1840s. If you just took his concerns about what technology might be doing to us and remove the context, and you'd think the guy was writing about right now. And what I always say is like, so worries about how developing technologies, by which he meant the railroad, right? Which seems real quaint. The, this worry about emerging technologies has always been there. I just think that today, it has definitely, like the dial has been turned up, not even to 11, but to like 30, right? And so I think like, what I like about this conversation right now is it is, again, just the really important reminder that more I do think more than ever before, we have to really be thinking through good uses of technology and bad ones. And what should we leave alone and what can be adopted to a beneficial end? And I think it's really hard. I think that's really hard. Well, and I think part of the conversation has to be that, right? It's not what happened with Google and, and a lot of the development, the, the advent of this, this situation that we're in, was that they, it was behind closed doors. Nobody, it wasn't an open conversation. It was, it was happening in Silicon Valley, in these boardrooms, and decisions were being made where whether or not they were you know, morally inclined or whatever, they, it wasn't like, hey, this could be really bad. And like, if you guys want to do that, like it wasn't an open conversation. I think right now, Part of the, the great thing about a podcast or, or some of these other mediums that are coming around is that it does facilitate that. It's, you know, as we go forward, I don't have the solutions. I, I don't have a crystal ball where I can see with our best intentioned effort right now, does that turn into another shit show in, in three years? I mean, we just, I just don't know. But having the conversation as part of that platform is really a, a good step, right? Because at least then you're engaging in it and you're, you're allowing different perspectives to share maybe fears or optimism or inspiration. And through that, you'll you have a higher likelihood 
of staying on track, right? Even if Google started out as boom, perfect, right? Like best intentions, they skewed off to now like pretty, pretty destructive in a lot of ways. And third, lots of benefits to people in everyday life, but, but definitely some identifiable shit storms that have come out of that. And, you know, if they'd been really transparent in that whole thing, would that have allowed them to stay in, in the, in the happy zone, right? Of, is this beneficial? You know, are we overstepping? Can we still make profit and, and be viable? You know, and that's, I think that's a really important concept that we embrace now is that having the transparent conversation of like, look, we don't know, but it, it has to be discussed as we go, because if it's quiet and happening in boardrooms for the wrong reasons, it's a real good chance that no matter what we do, technology is going to end up turning on us a little bit. Yep. Yeah. I want to ask you a moment about your own racing career. You talked about how you would be getting feedback from different coaches and one is telling you one thing and others telling you something different. So how much time were you yourself spending really studying video of your own skiing or, or what were you doing in terms of trying to collect either that visual data or other forms of data? Because again, I think sometimes it might be easy to assume that it's like, look, you were a really good athlete with a very distinct approach to racing and so, right, how much is it fair to say like, yeah, man, I wasn't really doing any of that or I was doing far more than some of you maybe understand? Well, I think from the video side, it was more just for fun, honestly. You know, I, I, there wasn't a whole lot of value coming out of that because I, I was fortunate. I had an exceptional support crew around me. My grandmother was a huge influence on me. And when I was seven years old, it was 1984 Olympics. Bill Johnson won gold, uh, Phil and Steve Mayer medal first and second slalom and and i i had a conversation with her then said you know hey what is it like you know i'd already been working and i was like i basically told her i said this working shits for the birds like i gotta figure out a better plan this this is not this is not my jam like this fucking blows like and she was like okay well they were just babies who shat in their diapers just like you and then they got older and they had the right opportunities they stayed with it long enough and they ultimately uh, had, had the ability to be successful athletes. And I said, okay, well, that's what I'm going to do. And she was like, all right, well, keep in mind, you, what do you see about them? I was like, oh, well, you know, that dude has a beard and you know, this dude, whatever I said, she said, yeah, the point is they're in their twenties, you know, or the, the mayor brothers had success at a younger age. She said, don't, don't stress, have a plan and think it through to when you need to be good. Uh, that's when you're 15. That's a different thing than when you're 20 or 25. And I, she said, if your goal is to be an Olympian and be the best in the world, that shit's just factually not going to happen until you're probably 20, 21, 22. So be prepared and get your mind wrapped around long game and what that kind of commitment takes and what it means to you and how you're going to navigate all those little ups and downs between then. But also, you know, make sure that you have this enjoyment of what you're doing, because if you don't, it's going to be a, just like you think work is now where it sucks, you know, for, for 10 years and you may never get there. That was one of the most, you know, and I paraphrase that, but that was one of the more remarkable conversations. And I think I was uniquely equipped to have that with her and she was uniquely equipped to have it with me at that age, but was so informative. I mean, I, I really had this kind of constant get out of jail free card of like, look, you know, I'm trying to get good at 20 years old and I need to be able to beat every other dude on the planet and look at me like I'm a skinny 
you know, I can't run fast. I can't jump high. I'm not strong. I'm never going to be as strong as a Herman Meyer or Tomba. Like they're just better athletes. I was the first to admit, like, I'm not going to beat those guys on, on athletic ability. I'm not going to beat them on technique. They're born and raised in Austria where it's like drilled into them from the beginning. I was born and raised in New Hampshire where nothing is drilled into you from the beginning. I was like, I have to figure out what my best strengths are and what I'm, how I'm going to beat these guys. And, and I realized really early that I was, I had a different way of thinking about things. I had a different way of using my imagination. I had a different ability to uh, tolerate certain amounts of risk as long as I knew that they were justified and, and that I could sustain that. And I was like, that's going to be my strength. I'm going to race harder and take different risks and be more creative than everybody else. And, and that was, that's like one of those, it's such an intangible thing, right? It's not, I'm going to squat more. It's like, it was such an internal thing that it, it was incredibly empowering. I was like, okay. And then I, and I took it, I think much more seriously than anyone would give me credit for. I built scenarios where I was using my imagination to, to think of what was possible outside of the scope of even what those guys were doing at that time. And that was when I was 12 years old, 13 years old. I was like, what is the, what's the, what's skiing going to look like in 10 years? What's it going to look like in, in 12 years or 15 years? And I don't think anybody else was really doing that at that time. So video was more comedy because I was like, oh my God, look how fucking bad I am. <laughs> you know, I mean, there's a huge gap between what I was seeing and where I was planning on going. But at the same time, you know, I had this empowering self-possession and, and accountability that transcended any coaching, right? Coaches were like, you got to have your hands more in front of you. And I was like, that's fine. But by the time I actually am good, you're going to be so far in the rearview mirror that it's not going to matter. So really, at the end of the day, I'm the one accountable for this. I'm the one on the train. And if I do bad, I'm going to be the one to blame. So I'll listen to what you're saying, but you got to understand that I have a plan that's different maybe than what your plan is for me. And no coach really ever thought I was going to be any good until basically I made the ski team. And even then, most of them didn't think I was going to be any good. So that's when I was 18, 19 years old. So I had to kind of shoulder that burden myself, which I think was, again, it was, it was really good for developing self-awareness, humility, but also that strong, steady confidence. And, and you know, I, I'm super stubborn by nature. So those things were the things that I really relied on. Okay, so this actually, I think I'm going to go here. This is one of the things I was interested in talking with you about. If you if you got 10 guys or 10 girls, say of a similar athletic ability, to have you talk about each of these different elements when it comes to racing, like how much importance would you put on, say, race tactics versus actual skiing technique versus the physical training or physical preparation in advance before you ever get to the hill versus the mental preparation versus maybe just a native natural mental toughness that I'm not really sure how we teach that versus the equipment. You're, you're exactly on point. And it's, it is, uh, it's an, I mean, we could talk about it for a long time, but I think it's really relevant to people who are in sports or not. Honestly, it's, uh, you know, it's a, it's a basic thing, right? When you're, I always like the analogy, like when you're looking at your wife, right? Or, or you're looking to get married, she has to be in a range of hotness, right? Or physical attractiveness to you. She has to be in a range of a bunch of other things, right? And it's the, it's the end result that matters. And that's what I was saying. I was never the strongest, fastest, biggest. I had never had anywhere near the best technique. You know, I had, I was kind of in the middle, even if you had a hundred racers racing, starting a world cup race, I was probably in some cases I was even low, like the, the worst end of the spectrum. 
but the areas that I was really, I was in at least the window you needed to be in to give myself a chance to win. Um, and that's, I, I, you know, look at Doug Flutie, right? Look at, look at Drew Brees, right? Those are dudes who they're not, they're not home runs on the, on the draft sheet, right? It's not like, Oh, you know, they're not the five tool guy from Moneyball, you know, it's like, but, but the reality is we've seen it time and time again, you know, secretariat versus Seabiscuit, you know, one is this spectacular specimen who had all the stuff that's in my mind, the Michaela Schifrin, right? She has it all. She has, you know, great support from her family and this mental toughness and discipline and amazing technique. And she's naturally super strong. Her strength to weight ratio is ridiculous. Her technique and, and everything play together perfectly. And she has tactical management. She's competitive, but not overly excitable. I mean, that's the, that's the ultimate right there. And then there's the 99% of the rest of us who are trying to gloss over our weaknesses and play to our strengths the best way possible and, and get the most out of what we were dealt. And, you know, that, that's not just sports, that's everything. I mean, you're, you have to hit your strengths and too many people focus on, you know, making their weaknesses better. The fact is that's fine, but you're never going to, you're never going to be a world beater. You can maybe move up from crap to middle by doing that. But if you want to be the best in the world, somehow, some way you got to be doing something better than everybody else. And that's, that's a, it's something that, you know, gave me incredible perspective afterwards. And it's, it's a fun thing to be able to talk to my kids about, you know, they're like, you are the best in the world. And I was like, yeah, it's true. I mean, literally no other human beat me on certain days, a bunch of different times. And the reason for that was because I was doing very specific things that are uniquely mine. And I was willing to really ramp those up, you know, and like you have to, right. I mean, there's, there's, that's a lot of people you're competing against and it's a well-vetted crew. And if you're not, if you're not looking at your unique attributes and maximizing those, you got no chance. So of those things that I just kind of laid out, right? Race tactics, skiing technique, the physical preparation, the either mental visualization, this other thing of just native mental toughness, force of will, I would call it. And then the equipment itself I, I think you've just said, you're like, maybe I was a, I don't know, a seven or an eight on a lot of those, not a 10 out of 10. Where do you identify for yourself? Maybe I was a seven or an eight or an eight or a nine or whatever we want to say, but here is where of all of those, I'm willing to say these one or two things were kind of your, your competitive advantage. Was there a one or two as opposed to just the mix? Yeah. Oh Yeah. No, no, it was, I had one or two. I mean, my tactics, my, my ability to be creative, my ability to use my imagination and, and then manage the outcome was, was something that I was uniquely equipped to do and was by far the best, um, in the world that I ever competed against or, or experienced. It was my ability to, to try something new real time in a course. So to see a line potentially that I thought could, and I could assess whether that was going to be faster, how much faster and whether it was worth the risk. And depending on the hill, depending on my fitness, my skis, all the things you mentioned, uh, I would decide if, if that was the way to win. And I, I approached almost every single race I was in from the beginning of how do I give myself the best chance to win this race? It wasn't, you know, a lot of the guys were, when they were starting, you know, in the 60s or 70s early on, they were like, I just want to get in the top 30. So they were having different tactics. I was starting in the 70s and 60s and saying, how do I win? And that was, it required a lot more risk and it required a lot more sort of creativity because 
even the best guys starting 60 or 70 had a very, very, very small chance of winning just the course deterioration and all the other crap, aside from the fact that my equipment was much worse than theirs. But in that case, the, that part of it, my ability to look at a course, see where there could be more speed, how to make more speed out of it was, was key. And then my ability to manage myself mentally. And I'll tell a, a quick version of that. I would write, I had a notebook that I had all these stories in some of them based on movies some I was, you know, Russell Crowe from The Gladiator. Some I was, um, you know, Mel Gibson from Braveheart. Some I was just myself. Some I would revisit old memories and I'd modify them. And I would go into super detail in this notebook, writing out a whole scenario, a whole story. And I would try to stimulate different emotional responses, primarily inspiration. Because at the end of the day, when you're in the start gate of a World Cup and you know you're much worse than everyone else out there and you're trying to win – is a huge fear factor. And to overcome fear, you really can only do it one of two ways. You can get super mad. Anger will do it. It'll overwhelm fear. But it's really unpredictable and, and kind of hard to manage. And inspiration, inspiration, love, all that side of things are much more manageable that you could stimulate and they'll overcome fear too. I mean, a, a mom can run straight at a bear who's about to attack her kid because of anger, usually, and inspiration mixed together, right? She wants to save her kid. And then there's this element of the bear is going to hurt my kid. But the fear is, is completely secondary at that point. It's just solve the problem. So I was developing these stories to apply to very specific race courses. And I would build them around that course. If it was a course that was really mellow out of the start, I would have one that was different than one that was super hectic out of the start like Kitzbühel. And I would figure out my tactics, make my plan, get everything dialed in. And then I would rehearse that. I'd play the story in my head. Uh, right before I started, like within minutes. And I could get my heart rate way up. I could get my hair to stand up on end because I built these stories to truly tap into my own emotions. And I was fully committing to them. It was like being a method actor in a sense. Like I was method acting my way and I would remove fear. I would remove all the other shit and then race as if my life depended on it or my sister's life or somebody, you know, like something, my motivation to do it at that moment was not at all connected to getting a prize at the bottom or some prize money or even world cup points or anything like that. I'd move to a whole different level so that I could have intensity that no one else could touch. Right. I mean, ultimately the, the highest level of intensity you'll have is with that absolute maxed out inspiration, love driven stuff, right. You you do anything for, for those emotions. And so I was able to, to put myself in the positions that were almost unsurvivable under normal circumstances. But because I had this emotional firepower powering my body, I was the mom who could lift a car off her kid or whatever. I was, I was pulling shit off. It was so far outside of my, my ability level or my physical ability level because I was powered by these other tools. And, and that was, again, that was where I was exceptional. I was way above everybody else. And that allowed me to overcome significant weaknesses. Method acting. I love that. I've never heard athletic performance described that way. And it makes a lot of sense. I don't think anybody really does it, honestly, but it, it should be done a lot more. It's, it's in my opinion, yes, yeah, it still takes work. It's not something it's just, you know, you just decide you're going to do it and do it. It took a long time and a lot of practice, but looking at somebody like Tiger, who is the opposite, he is in the moment. He feeds off the, the crowd. He feeds off that shot and he's able to overcome, you know, he had massive ability as well. But he's able to do it that way, like in the moment. But then you see the downside of when he had his kind of his his, you know, his moment and the crowd's not there and he has these insecurities that are built in. 
he's just not able to perform the same way. And it's there's physical things too, but that's not what's going on there. That is entirely his biggest strength was swiped away from him through his own actions in a sense. So I was kind of uniquely equipped to be a self-contained unit. I didn't need anything else. I was, you know, I was insular from every other aspect and I was able to feed off of really inspirational moments like the Olympics or, you know, things that happened in my life um, outside of skiing and plug those in effortlessly and and continuously get stuff out of myself that was uh you know that's one of the the things i'm the most proud of is that i was able to to do these things that were even now i would never try to do again because they were just like i mean the likelihood of it working is like one in a thousand and yet i was doing it are there any other ski racers in particular who you think he or she might be doing something a bit similar or just the way what you know about their own training or the way you see them on a race course. And then I'm also interested, is there an athlete in a different sport who you look at and think he or she might be doing something a bit similar to what you were doing? In my sport, I don't think so, but it's also hard to tell. I think it's uniquely hard to tell in skiing, but say, say like, uh, you know, in something like football, right? You can tell the guys who are who are playing angry, who are playing like like their life depended on it, right? I mean, Ronnie Lott used to hit people in the back feet. I mean, in the you know, the, it was like so disproportionate to what was going on. It was like, you know, and and you you do see that in other sports often. And the level of effort, the level of of sort of mental, it's like you, you can see people, I guess, phrase it as playing with a chip on their shoulder, right? There, there's something else there. It's not just the format that's given to them. They're, they're coming in with their own sort of ancillary tools that they're using to perform. And I do see it in a lot of other sports, but in skiing, I think it is, it's difficult to spot it because it's such a, the, the way it's laid out is, is unique. Kevin Garnett comes to mind, though I, I don't at all think that what Kevin was doing was exactly what you're describing, but in terms of just famously ratcheting up to what you, to use your phrase, absolute intensity. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think every time, like by every account, every time Kevin Garnett stepped on a basketball court, it was evident, but I don't, yeah. I don't know if he was going through what you were describing as method acting to, to get there. Right, with some of that, you know, depending on, on the history and background and personality, right? Some of it can just be like, you know, this is my chance. It can be the, the eight mile, you know, yeah, yeah. uh, you know, that Lose kind yourself. of version. Yeah. Or it can be, it can be that, that chip of like, you know, proving people wrong because of, you know, whatever, some conversation you had with a coach or whatever. And, and that sticks with somebody. It's just one thing that sticks with them for their whole career, you know, their, their father leaving or <laughs> whatever, you know, but yeah, I, I think there's a difference between that, not better or worse, but versus building scenarios that are very specific and specifically designed to accomplish certain things and putting yourself there. And I think, you know, again, it's, uh, we liken it in New Hampshire, you know, if you were a fair weather skier, you just didn't, didn't ski. If you were a fair weather person, you just didn't do shit because it's nasty up there. And we, I, I developed and with a, my whole friend group there, and we still talk about it now, the ability to make things that suck fun. And, and you just, it takes practice just like you'd expect. But once you have that skill, it stays with you forever. I mean, you, you're just so much more capable of adapting to adversity and challenges and, you know, and failure and all these things because you can, you just twist it around in your head. You know, it's all about perception and you can, you can, it's, it's more malleable than people expect. People think of failure, or, you know, strife or all these things as one dimensional. 
you can flipped around they're 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 inspirational and and you know learning tools and and just cool talk to me about dtx another thing you're involved with yeah it's a company originally started by a kid out of stanford uh stanford think tank kid andrew duplaze and he, he was bought by tim armstrong who was i met back in the aol days uh tim was early on at google took them public from two bucks to two billion and and then was CEO of AOL, I think. And and I met him and and he ended up buying this kid's company. It's a advanced QR code. And we've all now become familiar with QR codes. You go into a restaurant, it's your menu and all this stuff. And he wanted to allow the ad sort of space to be more, I guess, normal, not shoved in your face, uh, marketing material, you know, based on an algorithm that says they can sell you this if they throw it up in your face five times while you're looking at these at these pictures. And so the nice thing about these QR codes, you you have to take your camera out and you have to actively participate. You have to do the thing. And it's off the web. It's essentially, they, they go to, it's a flow code. Uh, the name of the company is flow code and it goes to a flow page. And the flow page is essentially your own managed internet within the internet. So it's not, nothing tracks it on there. It's just its own little bubble. And you can have all your social media on there. You can have ads you can have whatever you want but it's really a i like it because it'll for for one thing for athletes right i I always am trying to leave the space better than when i came into it and i think athletes need a way to communicate and and build their brand and and be authentic and in in their own way and this is an amazing tool for that and you can the qr codes you can stick them on stickers you can stick them anywhere they can participate in different campaigns that your companies do or whatever and i just think it's a it's a really cool technology and I've been using it in a bunch of the stuff I'm doing to allow people to, to if they're interested, explore stuff versus forcing it in their face. And I think, you know, again, it's, it's my tiny little effort to make ads and marketing less annoying because I've never been one to try to sell stuff. But at the same time, I want people to see uh, it's by, by nature. I, I don't like selling stuff. I like telling people what I like about it and what, what makes sense and why I, why I make the decisions I do. And hopefully, um, maybe inform them if it's the right thing for them, they can then do that. Or if not, they, they at least know my perspective on it. So, you know, it's more than any of that, the actual application or technology. Tim is a really inspirational, unique character. And he's been a powerhouse in technology for, you know, the last 30 years, probably kind of behind the scenes, not somebody whose name pops up in the news all the time. But and he's got a really strong moral compass and tries to do the right stuff. And so I just, I love aligning with groups like that. He's got some of the smartest kids in the country, people, I guess they're not kids, maybe they're younger than me, so I can call them kids. But, and I just like working with people who are cutting edge, who are thinking of, you know, how do we apply technology in a positive way and do the right stuff and set, set an example that, you know, people can then build on in the future. Cause it's not going to happen overnight. And unfortunately, if we don't make these changes, not to get off topic, but on the social media stuff, our kids are, they're the first group generation that's fully raised with this as part of their stuff. So they're already somewhat socially debilitated. There's all these weird things that come along with that that are going to make them much less likely to be able to actively adjust in the future. If we don't do it now and start the ball rolling and give some some foundational work for them, I just think we're we're painting a pretty grim picture for them because they're 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 born and raised with it. It's going to be a much harder challenge for them than us who were raised with no cell phones and no no anything where at least we know the good things and bad things about what has happened. You know, we have perspective on it. They're going to have none of that because we, we did it, um, you know, and, and immerse, we submerged them in it from, from birth. Yeah. I think a lot about that 
you know, you think about, as you've already mentioned, we are born at a given moment in time and we have no control over that. But I do often think that I personally am real glad that I didn't, I wasn't raised with all of these different things. I, I don't, there's nothing about me that makes me think I would have navigated all that super well. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, I, I don't possess some like, oh, no, no, I would have been completely fine, you know, navigating. Yeah. I mean, the current social media landscape, the, the current technological landscape. And so, yeah, I mean, I do think like the kids, the parents and kids both have real work in front of them right now in a way that it's never existed before on the planet you know, coming back to that. And again, it's not to vilify technology. It's just to say there is a greater burden of responsibility than ever before to try to sort through this stuff in a beneficial way. So. Yep. Yeah. In a forward thinking way, you know, with, again, it's, it's always right. The best intentions. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Doesn't, doesn't mean shit, but at least we got to do our part and try. And, And for what it's worth. And again, thinking about, you know, these stats that you already know of, they're talked about again in the social dilemma, but like the rise of suicide rates, right? Among teenagers. And one of the things watching that, and it's really terrifying, but I found myself thinking like, God, you know what? No one ever got addicted to or killed themselves over the genre of the long form podcast conversation, (laughs) right? Like we get to actually dive into an issue and go as long as we want on a particular topic. And I was like, that's actually something about this new medium, newer medium that I really like, right? It's like, it's like what plays well here is do you actually have interesting and thoughtful things to say? It's not an airbrushed photo of, you know, you in a bikini. And so I was like, man, I do like the fact that the in the podcast space, like kind of they can be fun and they can be ridiculous, but they can also be thoughtful. And we can do it all in one conversation, right? But I think it is a pretty good and significant antidote to the like scroll through, these people are all living better lives than me. I think I'll just kill myself. I don't think podcasts are doing that. Yeah, well, and and, and you're not you're not wrong. And the reality is it's it's a conversation that Tim and I have very often. Um, you know, it was, it was a big driver as to why he left Google. And and it's also something that what is it? Conscious media? No, it's uh something media out of, and, and it's uh, up in like Sacramento area or whatever, but it's basically, you know, what, what, how do we, how do we mitigate the damage in the short term? And then how do we put in place things that are actually uh, meaningful and that, that allow people to connect? And I do, I agree. I think podcasts in a way, because almost even more so than, than a fireside chat or like, you know, because you're isolated, because there's a barrier of technology between you, you get a lot of, um, you know, I know Joe Rogan well, and I, I was one of the founders of On It, which he he's a, you know, one of the members of now, and you know, and Aubrey Marcus. I don't know if you know him, but yeah, he was the original founder, and he and I are, have been close since '06 or so. And I, I was one of the, I, I put in the initial money and helped him sourcing all the initial formulas for his original uh, stuff that he started up On It with. But we have dramatically changed and influenced each other's lives from these kind of conversations, and a lot of times. We've done them in person. We went to you know Peru and did ayahuasca together, and you know spent a bunch of time out in Arizona and all this stuff. But also, we've had these conversations just on the phone, right? Where there's it's this disembodied voice in your head. But when you have a great connection with somebody and they really are fully barriers down, invested in in you know the conversation, what's right and what's and exploring it, you know, real time with you 
going through the actual not not reiterating or, or you know regurgitating some other shit but really kind of going through it that's the that's an incredible value and i think that's the it is the antithesis of a prefab you know touched up picture on instagram right it's it, that is completely bullshit and prepackaged and put in a context that's fucked and then shoved to you and this is like the absolute opposite of that right it's it's full raw full reveal no, I mean, even though I'm sure lots of shit is kind of pre-digested, the good ones, the platform itself allows for that real authentic connection with people that, that you know, you can reach millions of people. And that's, that's the, the challenge in the past was like people relied on news or, or different channels and things. And we're all seeing, <laughs> seeing the, the challenges there. But this is, this is a different thing. I think, um, you know, both Tim and I feel strongly, we want to create a couple different platforms that are probably somewhat podcast based that have algorithms that sift through bullshit. So basically sift through news, sift through data and stuff and give people a space to then talk about it, communicate, share ideas. And, you know, of course there's pitfalls all throughout any of those type ideas, but it would also contain really kind of thoughtful people reacting to it and kind of helping people digest and and process. Cause that to me is like, I mean, I, I just find it so fucking depressing and confusing that so many people voted for Trump after four years of, I've known him for, you know, I, I played golf with him in Lake Tahoe on the stormy Daniels weekend. Like I was at altitude with him at the same table, you know, and I just, to imagine somebody like that being elected on purpose is fucking out of control. And then to see him be such a fucking ding dong for four years and all the damage he's done, regardless of where you get your news I find it crazy that people don't have any sort of ability to see through the news or see through the shit and actually be like, look, at some point, right, we we have an obligation to our kids and to the planet and to, you know, the species and other species on the planet. Like, what the fuck are we doing? I mean, to me, that that just it's just fucking nutty. But I do think people need they need help, right? They need like and not not a pity case, but like, hey here's some people talking real shit and like digesting things and like whether your opinion is the same or different, having an open conversation about it is what's missing, right? It's so polarized right now. It's like one thing or the other. And you know, that I think they call it like conscious dissidence, you know, basically the ability to truly accept that people have different ideas and different priorities and see things from the other side is like, we are atrophying at a crazy rate in that space, you know, and that's unfortunately with, with the speed of information transmission now, it's probably the most important thing we could ever do is to cultivate that in our kids and, and, you know, and, and not, not talking at people, but having a real conversation of like, why do you think that? And let's have a talk about it and let's not freak out. Like, but it's kind of like, look, I'm not trying to fight you. I'm just trying to have, you know, and I think that's, there's a gap right now in, in our country, but really globally, that's insane. And people, and I had a conversation with my wife the other day. She's like, what do you think is the one thing we could do? They would make like our lives better, you know, and, and make us better parents and whatever. And I said, I said, honestly, it's kind of one sided because I don't do social media, but you dropping social media. And she's like, I agree with you 100 percent. Yet she's fucking on it, you know, hours a day. So it's, you know, I, I see it from both sides. She she sees it, but yet it's too powerful. You know, They're, they do they do too good of a job. <laughs> any good, any good addiction, right? Any good I mean, addiction. Fuck, I, I, I've been I've been. You know, I've been an exploratory spirit my entire life, and I have a unique ability not to get addicted to things, probably because of stubbornness and like ego and honor. 
you know, I, I, I've always separated myself in my mind. And when my mind tells me something, I always kind of like bounce it around in there. I'm like, wait, that's not, that's bullshit, you know? And so I can identify things that are addiction based really easily transparently. Whereas any good addiction makes it sound like it's your voice in your head. It's it, you make it, it makes you think it's you who actually wants to do the thing. And, you know, any good system is self-perpetuating and it's, that's, that's the problem is like, I just feel like, you know, I, I don't often feel like I'm, you know, a ton more advanced than people, but in that space, I'm like, Jesus, man, it's like, thank the fucking Lord that I was born with that shit or developed it. Cause I can't imagine having no ability to do that and manage that side of it. If I decide I'm not doing something, it's simply don't do it. It's like, it's that easy. It's like, okay. And Aubrey always like, he says, I'm like the most, the most extreme person in that sense. There is no marginalization of any of that. If I just say, it's like 100%. If I say this, it's like, you know, if I'm going to want to smoke, it's like, you just simply don't put the thing to your face. Like, right. Like at the end of the day, it comes down to one very simple actionable thing. It's just, it gets in your head where you think it's you who does want to do it, even though you previously knew that you didn't want to do it. And that's what it drives me crazy when, you know, obviously my wife, who I love and, and admire, is just incapable of separating. Last thing, because I know you got like six kids who would really love to see you right now. Crossing, what's going on there? It's my, my ski company. I joined this past year and... Uh, you know, skiing has been obviously a, a massive part of my life and it's, I love it and, and always will do it. And, and it's, you know, I, I love that it's one of those things I can do hopefully until I'm real old and I can do it with my kids and my wife and she's getting totally into it now, which is awesome. I wanted to build skis that were better and that were safer and that allowed people to build confidence and enjoy the sport. And skiing has been in this kind of semi-reverse auction for the last 40 years where they just try to make everything cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. And the the manufacturing process hasn't really changed. So to make them cheaper, they move them to China, manufacturing to China or wherever. And then they just remove material basically and try to figure out how to make it not suck too bad, but by making it cheaper. And I wanted to make skis that ultimately at the, at the foundation, skiing is about confidence. It's about self-belief and about imagination and creativity. You have to first try to do something before you can actually do it. A lot of times things don't just happen on their own. And so to build confidence in a person who maybe doesn't have a lot of confidence, the equipment is so critical. And if you have a ski that's unpredictable, that does weird shit all the time, that you feel like you're out of control anyway, doesn't do much for your confidence. So you're going to kind of stay where you are. And staying where you are, that stagnation is, is brutal in skiing. You can still go top to bottom, but we don't use skiing as a mode of transportation. We use it as a recreation. So it should be inspirational and, and exciting and fun. And so I, I really focused on building skis, using all the, I mean, I've been exposed to some of the top engineers in the world over, you know, my 20 years. And, and I, I built skis for every company. That's how I added value. And, and so, and I'm an engineer at heart. And so I, I took that and built skis that are inherently, they, they drag the person forward. They're always asking you to do more. They're always, they do everything they're supposed to. They're super predictable, help you build confidence. They're never doing something erratic or crazy, no matter what the scenario is. Um, which leads to more safety. People, I don't like seeing people get hurt. Skiing is a dangerous sport and for my own family, but really anybody, I've seen it too many times. And then as, as the person skiing, the, the ski is kind of asking them, hey, try this. Like, I'm here for you. I, I got you. Like, I'm stable. I'm, you know, try this, try that. And that I think had never been done before where somebody really had that as their intent and had enough knowledge and experience that that's a real thing and how to get those qualities into a ski. And again, when you mentioned the very beginning that I have a million things on my mind, I, I did an exercise the other day 
it's really, there's, there's a lot of different variables, but there's basic side cut. There's early rise, which is how the ski comes up off the snow. There's tip shape, which is the actual tip curve. And then there's flex and binding position and torsional force and longitudinal flex. So you take those variables, it's not reinventing the wheel. You don't need to have, you know, lights and diamond coated top sheet and, you know, some unobtainium core in your ski. You just need to match those things together correctly. But when you're talking about one millimeter here versus early rise, one centimeter further forward, the number of variables, we cut it down and basically they're infinite, right? There's, there's literally infinite variables. But within the range of logic, there's still 600,000 or so variables just right there. And you have to hit all those pretty close or right on. Otherwise, it doesn't work. You can have everything else right, but one of those variables just a bit too much off and the ski skis like shit and does nothing right. I was out there two days ago on a ski that I designed for crossing. Um, you know, again, I'm an owner and it's a very small company and everyone's wearing multiple hats, but I was out testing a ski that I just got that I built. It's a 118 underfoot. So it's technically a powder ski. It's just way wider than you'd ever ski for on piste. And I got on it and made some turns. I was like, oh, it's nice. It's like perfectly like balanced. Like you can skid it sideways. You can chuck it stop. You know, it doesn't feel like you're coming way up off the snow because it's so wide. It felt long radius, right? Not much side cut. I used the early rise and the side cut match perfectly to get the ski to still turn dramatically, but without really side cut. And I was, I, I made, you know, three quarters of a run skiing with my wife and kids and was like, this thing is, it's doing all this stuff, like better, much better than any ski I'd ever been on anywhere near that width. And I was like, I'm going to, I want to pin it on the bottom. There's this nice, long, steep pitch on, you know, hard groomed snow. It's early season. We haven't had snow in two weeks. So it's pretty firm. And I, and I just like turn after turn, just higher edge angle, higher edge angle, you know, going 45, 50 miles an hour, hip on the ground, full angulation, just laid down. And the thing just performed. It just stuck and had steady grip. And the harder I pushed, I could get it to turn more. If I relaxed, it would turn less. It never chattered, never wobbled. And I stopped at the bottom and I was like, I had little chills. I was like, my hair was a little bit up. I was like, damn, that was fucking, that's what I'm fucking talking about right there. And that's the feeling that's been missing from, even if it's not in the end result, it's even missing in the intent. No ski companies are trying to do that. They're trying to build a graphic that people will buy. You know, they're, they're in the, like, the, like, let's, let's build a snazzy marketing plan. You know, I wanted something that did, that gave people that feeling that like made them like, fuck it, dude, I'm going to send this thing. And then, and then they get the experience out of it. And that's, you know, that's what skiing has been for me. And that was sort of the motivation behind crossing, uh, you know, that little anecdote, it was, it was one of the first times in the last 10 years that I've been on a ski that was, that truly overperformed and and inspired me it was like jesus that was fucking rad like that's what skiing's supposed to be right there so that's the that's the short version i want to let you go uh hate to do it but again you know six kids it's a great excuse we have to talk again sometime where we really i mean you said like you're an engineer i really want to drill down on ski design boots ski boots and bindings because I have a hunch you have some other thoughts that we haven't touched on yet. I'd love to do that. Plus, I we got to have the Reikley conversation. 
because that one, I, I have some questions for you. So I hope we can find a time to do that. And then we'll probably end up like meeting up and then talking about, I don't know, education in the 18th century first for a while or something like that. But hey, man, this has been really fun. I mentioned this, that I really think it is a cool thing for those of us passionate about these different sports when some of our favorite skiers or basketball players or whatever are really good at that activity they do, but are also clearly thinking, you know, about the world. And and I've always kind of personally gravitated to folks like that. And you've always been one of those people. And so hence, it's fun to link up today and get to talk about some pretty big topics. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. We'll definitely do it again. There's There's a lot to talk about. You brought up Thoreau. I was lucky enough to have those handed to me at a young age. And that's that's some impactful stuff. Yeah, man. Hey, best of luck with everything you're working on right now. We'll look forward to the next time. Appreciate it. Well, that's it for this edition of the Blister Podcast. And if you are enjoying these conversations, we'd encourage you to subscribe to the Blister Podcast. Leave us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts and be sure to tell your friends about the show. I also want to say thanks to Bodie for the very interesting conversation. Thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing this episode. And thanks to you for listening. Now, please take good care of yourself and everybody else. And we will talk to you again tomorrow over on our Off the Couch podcast, where we've got another really interesting conversation lined up for you there with Zoe Rome. Take care, everybody, and we will talk to you again real soon.